The Guardian. Hello, I'm Alison Benjamin and this is Environment Weekly. Coming up on this week's show, Brian Paddock, the Lib Dems mayoral candidate for London, sets out his plans for greening the capital. Environment Minister Lord Rooker gives us the lowdown on the buzz surrounding the state of Britain's honeybees. Our bees are under attack, if you like. We need to look after them. Um, We've got to do that in the best way possible, really. And we hear from a campaign that started life in the Devon town of Totnes and has now reached such dizzy heights of fame, it's even been featured on the arches. This is Environment Weekly from guardian.co.uk. Unplug your mobile phone charger to save around £3.50 a year. For more easy ways to save, complete our energy savers report at britishgas.co.uk forward slash ESR. With me in the studio, I'm joined by John Vidal, the Guardian's environment editor. Hello. And a special guest, Brian Paddock, the Lib Dems London mayoral candidate. Hello. Brian's taken time out on his busy mayoral trail to discuss some of this week's top eco stories. And we'll be asking him about his plans to make London greener later in the programme. Brian, just quickly, what seems to be people's top green concerns on the doorstep? Is it dog poo or green spaces or climate change? Green spaces, I think, is the most immediate thing that people think about. There's been quite a lot of building in people's back gardens, for example, and people are very concerned about that issue. Climate change, I think, is sort of one uh, one piece removed from people's everyday experience, and we need to get it back onto the agenda, I think. OK, well, we'll be speaking about that later. Now to our first headline. UN chief calls for a review of biofuels policy, The Guardian. Not a week seems to go by now without a new warning about the dangers of switching from food crops to crops grown for fuel. Now UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has waded into the debate, concerned that competition for land use is pushing up the price of staple foods and leading to a global food shortage. According to the UN's World Food Programme, 33 countries now face unrest as families go hungry. Here in the UK, although biofuels are still under review, the government is going to introduce the EU's Renewable Transport Fuel Obligation next week. This means all transport fuel will have to include a percentage of biofuels. A number of NGOs, including Campaign Against Climate Change, Biofuel Watch and Friends of the Earth, are so concerned that this will cause massive deforestation and more global warming that they're organising a biofuels day of action on April the 15th. John, what do you think needs to be done about biofuels? I think we've got to renew, re- review the, all the policies. The Euro- Europe has to review it, Britain has to review it. Uh, clearly, three years ago, four years ago, when this was brought in, nobody thought of the long-term consequences. Just America alone, the amount of land which it's dug up in, in, or switched to biofuels in the last two years has been enough to feed 250 million people. That means 250 million <laughs> people are not getting the food they were getting before. And this is all to fuel cars. This is, not, this is completely insane. The extraordinary thing is that the, 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 um, the UN itself was arguing for biofuels very, very vehemently only two years ago, saying it was going to be the answer to poverty and it was going to be the answer to, f- to uh, food shortages. And now this interview with mm. Banking Moon has shown the absolute opposite. Mm. I mean, Brian, there must be alternatives. What about running London buses on recycled cooking oil, for example? Well, interesting. Richmond Council, Liberal Democrat Council, is actually running its vehicles on recycled cooking oil. And I'm visiting uh, their, their refining plant uh, tomorrow, Uh, by coincidence, Uh, so I shall be able to see firsthand what's going on there. 
So do you think that would be a good idea to try and expand that across London? I mean, you could be collecting ore from kebab shops and chippies and canteens, that type of thing. Exactly. I mean, there, there are two issues here. Clearly, growing crops in order to, to make biofuel is not uh, the best way forward, as we've, we've heard, because of the negative consequences in terms of hunger and so forth. But recycling uh, foodstuffs, uh, which would otherwise be thrown away, then that's clearly a way forward. Turbine technology is turning the tides into power of the future, the times. Although this government seems wedged to nuclear energy, plans are pushing ahead to harness tidal and wind power as well. Within weeks, a deep-water device that generates tidal electricity on a commercial scale is due to start operating off County Down in Northern Ireland. It's the first of its kind in the world, and it could produce enough electricity to supply a 1,000 homes. A further 70,000 homes near Grimsby could get their electricity from a prototype generator to be tested in the Humber Estuary, and the world's first tidal farm may get the go-ahead in Pembrokeshire later this year. And finally, power firm E.ON this week applied to build a wind farm off the Yorkshire coast that would be big enough to supply electricity to 195,000 homes. So, John, renewables aren't dead in Britain. This all sounds good news. And nearer to home in London, we've got the uh, London Array planned. Well, I think, I mean, no one's ever doubted that marine power, tidal power, was a fantastic possibility for Britain. The problem has been that the Department of Energy and Government has really put nothing into this over the last 10, 15 years. We've lost our lead. We had a complete lead. And uh, now we're going so far to nuclear and even to coal that there's still a real danger that renewables will be um, muscled out and there just won't be the incentives there to develop these really nascent and interesting new technologies like marine, which are clearly... You know, it could be the future. Brian, have you got a wind turbine on your home in London? Unfortunately, I live in a flat on the fifth floor, so I don't mm. have a roof to put my <laughs> wind turbine on. But, you know, I think, you know, what John is saying is a really important point. With the political will, uh, with the investment uh, being made rather into uh, coal or into nuclear, then we could make real strides forward in terms of renewable energy. Uh, And we've already said that we want to try and power as much of London Underground as possible from the London Array, uh, from a wind farm in the Thames Estuary. And do you think that's going to be possible? I think, again, I think a lot of this is is as much about political will as it is about practicality and and whether it's commercially viable or not. And certainly there is no lack of political will from my perspective. Study says climate targets is not radical enough. The Guardian. One of the world's leading climate scientists, James Hansen, head of the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, says the EU's current targets to cut CO2 emissions are not tough enough. Without substantial higher targets, he warns the world's temperature will go up by 6 degrees Celsius and sea levels will rise by at least a couple of metres this century. Last week, John, we had the Royal Society attacking Minister's coal power policy. Surely this latest study must be the nail in the coffin for the new generation of coal-powered stations in Britain? Well, it is. And the trouble is that Jim Hansen, we have to take very, very seriously. I mean, he is the man who probably alerted the world more than anybody else to climate change. Now, he, when he's revising his, his figures uh, up to this moment, people have thought generally 450 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere was roughly a target which we should be aiming at, 2 degrees centigrade. He's revising this down to 350. It's a significant change, and it reflects a growing mood, I fear, in the science community where people are saying these 60% targets, even these 80% targets, which which, um, NGOs are calling for, are actually not even going to be enough there. Everything which we thought was necessary is is going to be worse. 
James Hansen said this isn't a recipe for despair and disaster, but Brian, don't you think you know the ordinary person on the street when they hear that these figures are being revised, you know, they just get more and more cynical and they don't really understand what's going on and and maybe get less um, you know less supportive of green policies and green taxes. I think unfortunately it plays into the hands of the cynics. It it plays into the hands of politicians who aren't taking this issue seriously. But what these reports uh, should be alerting ordinary people to is the real uh, danger of climate change, how immediate it is, and how drastic uh, the moves are that need to be made to address it. Now, a few weeks ago, I reported on the plight of honeybees in the United States, where a mystery disease called colony collapse disorder has killed a third of honeybee colonies. Well, here in the UK, the Environment Minister, Lord Rooker, has said that honeybees could be wiped out in just 10 years. Since most of the fruits, vegetables and nuts that we eat are pollinated by honeybees, that's pretty bad news. This week, the minister unveiled plans to save the insect. Martin Wainwright joined him in St Helens, home to Ormskirk Beekeeping Association. I'm in what the poet W.B. Yeats would call the Bee Loud Glade, although the bees are a bit quiet today because it's cold. But um, Alan and Edwina Abbott have got this lovely farm between St Helens and I suppose Wigan. Yes, you run this farm and a farm shop and cafe, but you've got a particular interest in bees. That's correct. We run beginners' courses from here. Your orchard here is is literally buzzing with bees. It is, yes. In the summer, um, it's alive with bees. (laughs) (laughs) Dangerous place. Now, the reason we're here is is that a lot of beekeepers are worried about various diseases coming here. Is is that something that concerns you too? Oh, yes, especially with varroa mite. There were uh, treatments for it. Now they've become resistant to those treatments and we're having to find other ways of uh, being able to keep the mite at bay. Uh, And then there's this new one, it's a total hive collapse, which needs a lot more research and development into that. That sounds terrible, total hive collapse. I mean, is that literally what it means? Yes, it does, and we don't really know what causes that to happen. There's umpteen other um, diseases that bees can suffer from. They need a lot more research and development into those. So, Lord Rooker, Jeff Rooker, could you just... um, outline why you're here and this consultation that you're launching well i'm here because it's not london to start with very good (laughs) (laughs) you've won me over (laughs) uh no we wanted to uh have the launch of the bl strategy something we've been working on with the industry for a while so this was um, a good opportunity i mean the fact of the matter is if we don't look after our bee population and don't take all the necessary actions that we can take in terms of protection of our bee population, we'd lose it. I mean, it's the same with every walk of life. Uh, what you don't use and look after, you lose. Bees are a very important part of the food chain. And we do spend, as government, a fair bit on the bee unit, which is uh, based at York, but obviously services beekeepers around the country. It, it's a lot of money, 1.3 million, but it's well below what the beekeepers want. Oh, and it's well below. It's every, every sum of money you can imagine is well below what every group wants, and that applies not just to bees, it applies to every walk of life, particularly in DEFRA, we're strapped for cash. But I've been quite open and said that um, if they can come back to me with a, a strategy, we'll seriously look at it. And I'm quite happy to have a look to see what we can do if we had a strategy and a plan. Now, there's no piggy bank, but nevertheless, we can cope with emergencies. We do realise that. New diseases and new pests, we've really got to be on our guard for, as well as dealing with the pests that we've got now. Our bees are under attack, if you like. They're part of 
food production animals, like all food production animals, we need to look after them. Um, we've got to do that in the best way possible, really. Let me just ask your name, if I may. Doug Jones. And you're a beekeeper? Yes, I'm a beekeeper myself, yeah. In a slightly unusual place? Got some hives on the roof of Liverpool Museum <laughs> in William Brown Street and get marvellous honey from them, absolutely beautiful. Very, very dark um, black honey. They'd find, I mean, there'd be plenty of wildflowers in Liverpool, I guess, no, but parks... Downtown and... Liverpool, I don't think there would be. I think it's mainly off the trees, I would think. There's a very old saying, a tree to a bee is a supermarket where the flowers are corner shop. Marvellous. So that's, that's, <laughs> an old, that's an old beekeeper saying. Martin Smith, you're the national chairman of the British Beekeepers Association and you are the people who are most worried about the um, potential danger of disease and the need to spend more. We're very pleased that the government is issuing this this new strategy document. We think it has a lot of very good points in it and we've been heavily involved in in the preparation so far. Our concern, however, is that it's fine words but without any money to support those words, um, nothing's actually going to happen. There are various statements within the strategy document about commissioning and supporting new research, uh, which is fine on the one hand, but on the other hand, we've then got definite statements from the government, indeed from Lloyd Rooker himself, saying that there is no funds available for funding research. Is, is £8 million or so, which I think is what you're um, hoping for, is that a rather lot of money to spend on bees? In comparison with the service that the bees provide to the overall economy, I mean, the, the figure we, we generally quote is £165 million a year. Goodness, and that, that's not just honey, that's no, pollinating. That, that's primarily pollination. Honey is outside that, really. Uh, that's the pollination that's provided by beekeepers effectively for free. In comparison with that, it's a very small amount. It's £8 million over five years. So we're looking at 1% really of uh, investment of the, of the monies that are provided by beekeepers to the, to the overall economy. Lovely. Well, thanks very much. Martin Wainwright at the Ormskirk Beekeeping Association. I'm Alison Benjamin. Still to come on this edition of Environment Weekly, we hear from Brian Paddock on how green the capital will be if he becomes London Mayor. Unplug your mobile phone charger to save around £3.50 a year. For more easy ways to save, complete our energy savers report at britishgas.co.uk forward slash ESR. The government has unveiled the 15 shortlisted sites which could become England's first eco-towns. But will the new towns follow the example set by Totnes in Devon and prepare for life after oil? For our campaign of the week, we visit Totnes, the world's first transition town. My name's Ben Brangwen and I work in a small charity called Transition Network, which I co-founded with Rob Hopkins, the originator of the transition towns concept. And together we're working with communities around the country and indeed around the world to try and help them initiate a project in which the local community looks peak oil and climate change squarely in the eye and devises an orderly energy descent down from there to get off the fossil fuel addiction we're on and to rebuild the resilience that we've lost as the cheap and abundant oil party went into full swing. And right now I'm in Totnes and I'm on Vire Island where the first visible manifestation of the transition project here in Totnes took place, which was the planting of nut trees. The intention is to turn Totnes into the nut tree capital of Britain. Nut trees, hectare for hectare, are able to produce more protein and carbohydrates than grain. So in terms of rebuilding the resilience in food systems, they're going to be absolutely crucial. So around the world, but principally in the UK, there are 
47 official transition towns or transition islands or transition villages, a couple in New Zealand and one in Australia, and I think the US will be on board pretty soon. And really the transition initiative within a town asks the community this very big question uh, for all those aspects of life that this community needs in order to sustain itself and thrive. How do we drastically reduce carbon emissions and significantly increase resilience? And has an emerging process that seems to unleash the genius of the local community in working together to answer those questions and devise projects that rebuild resilience and reduce carbon. That was Ben Branwyn from the Transition Network. And to learn how your town could plan for life after oil, go to transitiontowns.org or listen to The Archers on Radio 4, where Ambridge is going for transition town status. <laughs> Brian, I hear there's even been one set up in your old patch in Brixton. Well, to be quite fair, I haven't heard of it, and I think it's quite difficult in big urban areas. I know Totnes very well, and I can understand how the local community can come together uh, and actually face this thing together, and how that initiative might work. But uh, in somewhere like Brixton, I think it's going to be far more difficult. Well, one way to ensure your town or neighbourhood could be Come greener is to cut down your car use. Last week we featured car clubs on the show, and this week's pledge from the Guardian's Tread Lightly initiative is asking you to car share for a fifth of your weekly mileage. So whether it's the school run, getting to work, or travelling to a football match, why not share the expense and reduce the pollution? You can sign up for the pledge at guardian.co.uk/treadlightly. Brian Paddock, the Lib Dems London mayoral candidate, is with us in the studio. Brian, you're probably best known for being the highest-ranking openly gay police officer in the UK when you retired from the Met and for your unusual approach to cannabis when you were police chief in Brixton in South London. You'd argue that with 30 years' experience of fighting crime in London, you're the best choice for a safer city. But what can you offer Londoners who are concerned about the environment? I joined the Liberal Democrats because of the Liberal Democrats' environmental credentials and even the Green Alliance, the uh, completely independent campaigning organisation, believe that the Liberal Democrats have the best policies in terms of the environment. Uh, And I want to carry on that uh, fine Liberal Democrat tradition. But what I think we've got to do is we've got to to show Londoners that there is the opportunity for some early wins, some big wins. Most of London's CO2 is produced by private homes. So we have got to concentrate in the first instance on insulating people's homes, particularly those people who are poor, those people uh, who are long-term unemployed, and the elderly. Not only are they the people who can least afford to heat their homes, they're the people who spend most of their time at Mm. home compared Mm. with people who are economic active. So it's that sort of common sense approach to climate change, doing things where everybody will say, yeah, well, that makes sense. We can begin to change people's attitude, begin to change the culture. I think that's the most important thing. It's all very well having isolated initiatives. But unless you begin to build people's enthusiasm, their commitment to climate change, uh, then you're not going to succeed. So would you provide free insulation in people's homes? I mean, Boris Johnson is... uh promoting the idea of council tax rebates for people who insulate? Well, I think as far as the most needy people in in society is concerned, then we should be looking at free insulation. I don't think that's a waste of taxpayers' money. Um, At the end of the day, we're trying to save the planet as well as to try and narrow the gap between rich and poor. And this insulating people's homes for free has that double benefit, for example. And what about some of your other plans? I hear you want to introduce a a tram system across London. 
I'm a great fan of trams. There's one already uh, running in South London between Wimbledon and New Addington on the outskirts of Croydon. Uh, It's very popular. These trams carry twice as many people uh, as bendy buses, uh, which are universally unpopular. Would you get rid of the bendy bus? Well, what I want to do progressively is to replace the bendy bus with trams. Uh, Hydrogen technology, which is what the Mayor and the Green Party seem to be placing all their uh, bets on, is actually more than 10 years away. Tram technology is here now, and if we can source that electricity for the trams in an environmentally friendly way, they can be zero carbon as well. I also understand you want to get rid of the congestion charge in Kensington, the the sort of West London area, but you want to introduce it out of London, like in Croydon, for example. Well, we we were talking earlier about the sort of perverse consequences of things that appear to be a good idea at the time. And what we've had with the Western Extension is uh, people who own their gas guzzlers in and around Sloan Square can now get a 90% discount to drive their gas guzzlers into central London. (laughs) So it's had a real perverse impact as far as the environment is concerned. And... You know, the, the the changes to the congestion charge now, £25 charge for gas guzzlers, you don't, but, ex, but exempting hmm. band A and band B cars, the smaller cars, the net effect of that is going to be to increase the number of private cars on the roads, is going to be to increase congestion. Uh, and people know that uh, stationary traffic causes two and a half times more pollution than traffic travelling at 20 miles an hour. Again, it looks like, uh, on the face of it, a good idea, but I think the net effect will be a negative impact on the planet. And you've got this idea for green smart cards. Tell, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, this is the idea that if you uh, buy environmentally uh, friendly uh, goods, if you buy uh, fair trade items, um, then you can get discount off public transport. And um, self-sustaining, you want flats, schools, new tube stations to be self-sustaining. Can you explain that a bit more? There's a range of new technologies. and There was an eco-fair at Earl's Court that we visited uh, earlier on in the campaign. And the technology is already there to enable large developments to be self-sufficient uh, with combined heat, uh, power and cooling, for example, using grey water for uh, non-drinking purposes, a whole range of things that we could uh, insist are implemented into larger developments in London. So would that be 100% self-sustaining or you know, 20% That's self-sustaining? That, 100% self-sustaining has got to be the target. And talking of targets, what about the 60% cut in CO2 emissions that Ken Livingstone's very wedded to? Is that something that you sign up to as well? Well, you know, as we were talking about earlier and, and John was mentioning, um, the scientific evidence is changing all the time. And we can't have necessarily fixed targets. We have got to base what we're doing on the latest technology. And, and I think what basically whatever report you read, what it tells us at the moment is we have to do everything we possibly can to reduce our production of greenhouse gases. John, I know you had a few questions you wanted to ask Brian. Are you going to advise your, uh, your first voters who they should vote for in the second? Are you, are you going to um, endorse the Greens or Ken or, or uh, uh, Boris? I I have to be completely honest here. Um, In terms of who is going to be mayor, it's got to be one of the three of us, Ken, Boris or Brian. 
And when I look at Ken and I look at his record over the last four years, I find it very difficult to endorse him, all the problems with the London Development Agency and so forth. And then I look at Boris Johnson, who has no track record of delivering anything at all, and I find myself between a rock and a hard place but in envi- terms of who to endorse. But in environmental terms, I mean, Ken has made a name for... Uh, London, an international name as the city, the one world world city which is leading the way on things like climate change. Would you yeah, agree and with that? Yeah, and, and um, as the Greens keep telling us, it's because the Greens hold the balance of power in the London Assembly that they have been able to get Ken Livingstone to adopt environmentally friendly issues uh, which he would otherwise not uh, have adopted. The two Green members mean that his budget cannot be overturned by two-thirds of the Assembly. So that's why Ken is so enthusiastic about the environment. When you actually look at policies like the changes to the congestion charge, you can see he's actually playing politics. He's not actually committed. Who, in their right mind, if they were really environmentally friendly, would exempt any private car from the central London congestion charge? Surely this is being a little bit unwieldy. I mean, here's a man who has genuinely tried to introduce the congestion charge right the way across. He's set much higher uh, emission standards than any other local authority, any other country, in fact. And you're saying that that's, that's not enough. Ken Livingstone's enthusiasm for environmental issues are driven by the Green Party and his reliance on them in the Assembly. How much better would it be to have a Liberal Democrat mayor who the Green Alliance say is the most environmentally progressive party of all the major parties? I think we'll find that the the Green Alliance has just endorsed Ken. Well, what I'm talking about is... um, the policies that we have in the Liberal Democrats, um, the policies that I support, the policies that I endorse, are shown to be reasonable and practical and the ones that are likely to make a real impact on the environment uh, rather than Ken Livingstone, who is continually playing politics. It's argued that you're looking in four different directions at the same time. So you're picking the best, if you like, of Ken, the best of the Greens, the best of Boris and whatever. So there's, a, uh, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But that, in other words, you're moving further and further away from the, uh, the Lib Dems' um, national position on, on, on the environment. In fact, and some people say that you're watering it down. Is that true? Absolutely not. If you look, for example, at my alternative congestion charge, which is aimed at tackling long-distance commuting into London, and everybody every day, every weekday, can see the queues of cars uh, trying to get into central London along the A13 and the A3 and the A2. Every major road into London is clogged with cars. Mm. Um, And I am suggesting a boundary charge to try and cut down on long-distance commuting. A band B car that Ken Livingstone wants to exempt uh, from the central London congestion zone, driven from Brighton to London and back, for example, creates four and a half times more CO2 than a gas guzzler driven from Chelsea into Charing Cross. And but back. you're arguing that the, the, the poor people of Croydon or, or, or the outer suburbs who presumably don't particularly want to live there but have to because the prices are a little bit lower should pay a congestion charge, whereas the people of West London of Chelsea shouldn't. I mean, what's, what's going on here? No, because Croydon is actually uh, in London. I'm surprised you didn't know that. And then they would be exempt from the charge. So where exactly are you talking about extending the charge to, Brian? Can we just be a bit clearer okay, on this? It's, it's the Greater London Authority boundary. But what we would probably do is we'd probably put the boundary inside major shopping areas that are right on the boundary. Because what we don't want to do is what Ken Livingstone is doing with his low emission zone, which is putting uh, street markets and independent retailers out of business uh, because they can't afford the modifications to their vehicles. Uh, what we don't want to do is to dissuade people from shopping locally 
And so we would still want people who live just outside Greater London to still come into places like Croydon and Kingston to shop. Yeah. Uh, but what we want to stop is people who are travelling long distances into central London every day, commuting, causing massive congestion both in outer London and in central London, and significant pollution. And how would you improve the transport system to enable them to get in you know, without having to use their cars? Well, estimates that have been done before by Transport for London suggest that it could raise something in the order of £3 billion a year. That's a significant contribution to making transport much better to enable people to have a real alternative to using their cars. And how do you personally get around London? Uh, the only form of transport I have is my Oyster card. I don't have a car, I don't have a bike, I don't have a motorcycle. All I have is my Oyster card. So I'm very keen on improving public transport out of naked self-interest. <laughs> and um, Boris hasn't suggested that he's going to buy you a bike, has he? No, I mean, he's, he's uh, offered Ken Livingstone cycling lessons. I don't need any lessons from Boris Johnson on anything, uh, certainly not on cycling. If you could just sum up for listeners, if they're concerned about green issues, why is it that they should be voting for you rather than Ken or for Boris or the Green Party? Because I've got a practical common sense approach to climate change that's going to take Londoners with me rather than uh, putting people's backs up and actually causing a backlash against environmental issues, which I think Ken Livingstone and the Green Party are in serious danger of doing. Well, thanks very much, Brian. That's all we have time for on this week's Environment Weekly. Many thanks to my guests, Brian Paddock, and to John Vidal, and my producer, Kate Taylor. We hope to bring you another mayoral candidate, Boris Johnson, on next week's show, if we can persuade him to break his silence to the national press. Do you think that's likely, John? No way. <laughs> we phone him every morning. <laughs> Don't forget to visit guardian.co.uk slash environment to get your daily environment news. I'm Alison Benjamin. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.